You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. Good evening, and welcome to the Enoch Pratt Free Library's Writer's Live series. I am Vivian Fisher, manager of this beautiful department, and it is my pleasure to introduce this evening our guest author, Dr. Jesse Morgan Owens. Jesse Morgan Owens is a scholar, educator, and writer with 15 years' experience teaching and practicing participatory writing pedagogies. She received her BA in photojournalism and creative writing from Loyola University, New Orleans, and her doctorate in American literature from New York University. She is the author of the book, Girl in Black and White, the story of Mary Mildred Williams, which traces the influence of photography in the campaign to abolish slavery in the U.S. Her research in photography and abolition has been supported by a National Endowment for the Humanities grant and a residency at the Newhouse Center for the Humanities at Wesley College. She currently is the Dean of Studies and Director of Curriculum at Bard Early College in New Orleans. In addition to her academic work in photography, Jessie shoots professionally with the award-winning team Morgan and Owens. Originally from Monroe, Louisiana, Jessie lives in New Orleans with her family. Please join me in welcoming Jesse to the Pratt Library in Baltimore. Thank you. Hi, everyone. How are y'all? Um, I'm here today to talk about my book, Girl in Black and White, um, which is the story of Mary Mildred Williams. Um, and I first came into contact with her story in 2006. Um, I was reading the Boston Telegraph from March of 1855, you know, as you do. Um, and I discovered um, a letter from Massachusetts Senator Charles Sumner about a bright enslaved child named Mary. Um, he calls her another Ida May after the kidnapped white heroine of that year's best-selling anti-slavery novel, Ida May. Um, and he includes a daguerreotype of Mary in the letter. Um, so my dissertation was on daguerreotypy and anti-slavery writing, so I dove in after this um, particular lead And after nearly a decade of scholarship and grant-funded research in America's archives, I, along with my fellow anti-slavery photo scholars Zoe Trott and Mary Nell Mitchell, have now determined that this photograph of Mary that you see on the cover of this book may well be the first of its kind. So the daguerreotype from 1839, November, it's a French technology. It's the first technology of photography. And it became the predominant way that Americans made photographs pretty much as soon as it arrived in the early 1840s. Um, And it's really an amazing technology. In my book, I give a kind of detailed description of how they were made, but it involved silver-polished mirror plate, um, bronze, uh, mercury, uh, and uh, mercury was a bad thing because a, a lot of d- photographers went crazy. Um, but there was a um, daguerreotypes are fascinating in part because the photograph is printed on a mirror. So when you look at it, you see your face first, and you have to kind of tilt it this way and that, um, which 
And the photograph of Mary, I think, is a particularly interesting part of the story since most of the people who saw her photograph would have been a white person who was looking at the picture and reflection of it. So, yeah, if you ever have a chance to see a daguerreotype in person, I highly recommend it. Um, they've, they've obsessed me for some time. Um, I am a photographer, and the lens is my representational method of choice, but I also understand that a lens is a mimicry of the eye. It's a tool that we made that is copies the way that we see. Um, and in this case, uh, when photography was invented, people saw the opportunity to show folks what they saw exactly the way they saw it. So when I take a picture, I'm basically saying, this is what I see. Would you like to see it the way that I see it? So I can take a picture over here and say to this crowd over there, this is what I see and this is how I want you to see it. I'll frame things in my way. Surprisingly, though, the traditional photo histories for some time, certainly when I was coming up, were thinking that photography was not necessarily a part of political campaigns until the 1860s. Um, my dissertation and my research has been arguing that that's not the case, that political, it was political from day one. And I think anyone who's ever made a photograph and used it to prove a point knows that there's just no way outside of ideology when it comes to photography. Um, and anti-slavery and photography are now regarded to have overlapping histories. Um, their growing influence, innovative technologies, and sway over the public mind advanced apace in the 1840s and 1850s. And that photography changed the way people wrote, the way people thought, the way people argued their points um, has sort of become a commonplace, but it's easy to forget how the primal potency that these new images had on the fresh eyes of an antebellum audience. So this daguerreotype represents an extraordinary innovation in the history of media when Mary's daguerreotype marks the moment when photography began to make its tenacious claim on our sympathies and our political point of view. Um, so Mary is essentially America's first poster child, but as the Southern press pointed out, it was a little bit strange for the abolitionists to choose a white child to be the poster child for American anti-slavery when slavery was racially bound. So what was the point of that was a big part of what I was trying to get at in this book. Um, I'm going to start, I'm going to kind of organize my talk today about um, around this quote, well, two photo theorists that kind of guided me through the work. The first is Roland Barthes. Um, Roland Barthes is a photography theorist best known for his work, uh, Camera Lucida. He's a theorist of many things, but photography was one of his favorite things. And in that book, he says that there are three available stances that a person can take around a photograph. You can do it to do. You can undergo it or be the subject of a photograph. Or you can look at it. Uh, you can be a part of the audience. So I wanted to think for a moment about the picture makers, the people who are doing. Um, and I, since we are in Baltimore, I'm going to give that voice over to Frederick Douglass. Um, Frederick Douglass was a photography theorist as well as all of the other things that he was. Um, and he wrote four lectures on photography, during the, which he gave during the Civil War. Um, and those picture, as, and pro, they're known as pictures in progress generally, and they're held at the Library of Congress in manuscript. Um, so far, no one has transcribed all four. Um, however, they are available to download if you're into that kind of thing. Um, but I'm going to read to you a passage from Pictures in Progress, which he first delivered in 1861. It is the picture of life 
contrasted with the fact of life, the ideal contrasted with the real, which makes criticism possible. Where there is no criticism, there is no progress, for the want of progress is not felt where such want is not made visible by criticism. Poets, prophets, and reformers are all picture makers, and this ability is the secret of their power and their achievements. They see what ought to be by the reflection of what is and endeavor to remove the contradiction. In this quote, I feel that Frederick Douglass is asking us to endeavor to remove the contradiction between what is photographed um, and what could be visualized. So making this image of Mary was in some ways an act of vision. Um, I'm going to read to you from the part where Charles Sumner first encounters Mary and decides to have her photographed, in part because that piece right there tells us volumes about what he was doing when he decided to make this image. Um, and it appears, so Ford Maddox Ford, who's a, a British modernist, says that you can tell the quality of any book by looking at page 99. And I, um, so I got my copy of the book and looked at page 99, and it is blank. Um, so this is um, a bit concerning, but I am going to read to you from the proximal page, um, which is page 101. So I'm going to revise Ford Maddox Ford there. Um, This is from chapter 8. Charles Sumner was charmed by Mary's older brother, Oscar, when he met him in Washington after their manumission. Oscar, at 10 years old, was bright and intelligent with eyes of an eagle and a beautiful smile. When Sumner first met Oscar, he asked, You are free, young man. Do you know what that means? And Oscar replied, I now belong to myself. Sumner laughed. Well, there is a definition which philosophy might borrow. On February 13th, Charles Sumner divulged his plans for Henry and Elizabeth, that's Mary and Oscar's mother and father. He divulged his plan for their children. He would launch a publicity campaign around Oscar's bright and intelligent little sister, Mary. He chose Mary for her light skin color and her vulnerability to trafficking in the sex trade in young enslaved girls. Sumner sketched out a campaign around Mary's appearance. First, she would be photographed there in Washington by Julian Vanerson, who was one of the preeminent photographers at the time, and photographed on a daguerreotype plate, which in 1855 was the most expensive way to have a photograph made. He's intending to signify class. He was going to send that daguerreotype northward to be copied and displayed, and then the entire family would be publicly exhibited as they made their way north, first in New York, uh, where they visited the New York Times. The New York Times reported that they were astonished by her. And then they went to the State House in Boston, where, along with Solomon Northrop and Anthony Burns, um, were presented to the Massachusetts legislature. And then Mary was presented um, alongside Sumner in April as sort of a prop for his speech um, about anti-slavery enterprise. So um, that lecture had 4,000 people at it. So quite a few people saw her, and she was a bit of a media darling for the three or four months that she was in the public eye. I found hundreds of articles about her, largely describing her looks, so mostly the exterior of her, Um, I have found only one record of something from her interiority, and it's kind of a difficult record. So she says um, the 
the journalist from the Worcester Spy who sees her at the State House with Solomon Northrop and Anthony Burns says that she, um, let me get the words exactly right. She sparkled as she regarded the gold codfish in the hall, just like any other girl. So there's a little bit of bias there. Obviously, it's a slightly racist comment, but it also suggests something about her response to something. So I got on a, you know, I got on the tee and I went up to the state house to try and see the codfish for myself. It's made of gold, and it's strange that there's a fish in the hall in Massachusetts. And um, so it, it's not that surprising that she would respond to it in that way. But after 13 years of looking, those are the only things. Those are those those words are the only. Interior, like notes towards a personality or a note from from Mary that I was able to find. Um, her record has been completely silenced. Um, so she is there in the 19th century. She's there to be looked at. Um, she's a spectacle, not necessarily to be consulted or to have a conversation with. Um, I feel quite blessed by the five words that we have from Oscar. He passed when he was 16, um, so it's wonderful that he was recorded. His mother and his um, her mother and her grandmother um, were not, not. We don't have anything from them, but there is some records of what her father was like. So maybe we should move to the second part of Roland Barthes' formulation and think about the person who undergoes the photographing. So that would be Mary and her family history. Um, I was. Looking at um, Mary, let me see if I can start. I was looking at Mary's photograph today with some students from the Bartley College High School um, that we have here in Baltimore, um, and they were saying that the first thing that they would do was to try and restore her background because when you become a poster child, your history is whitewashed and flattened. There's not any sort of background contextual knowledge from which people can go on. She's just, you know, not really, I'm going to put this back up in a second, but she's not really visible as a person. And so um, they said, well, you, you got to, you know, the next thing you have to do is you have to look up everything you can about her. And I suffer from a, a dedication to completeness, according to my husband. Um, so I have, I've, I, I kept looking and kept looking and kept looking. And um, it's, it was, it's very difficult to find much about a family that was in slavery, as well as a family that, I mean, her name was Mary, and her last name was Williams in Freedom, so it's not an easy name to find. Um, But I'll tell you what I found out so far, at least some of it. Um, She was born into slavery in Virginia in 1847. Um, Her father, Seth Botts in slavery and Henry Williams in Freedom, escaped to Boston in 1850 through the Underground Railroad. Uh, It's likely that he ran the whole way. Um, When he arrived, he found his way into the robust um, community at Beacon Hill and was a waiter at the Cornhill Coffee House. Fugitive slave catchers, otherwise known as the police, came to look for him there, and he was uh, secreted out of Boston and hid with Henry David Thoreau, who recorded a wonderful conversation with him, um, which is the heart of chapter four of my book. It's probably one of my favorite chapters because I'm such a fan of Thoreau, but also because it's a moment where we actually get to know a little bit about a character and what they thought. Um, Thoreau and Seth um, Henry were the same age. Um, he, When he got back from hanging out in Concord with Thoreau, um, he did not go to Montreal as his predecessor Shadrach Minkins had gone. He decided to come back to Boston and to start fundraising for his family and for his own manumission. 
Um, his first stop was John A. Albion, well, John Albion Andrew, who would later become the governor of Massachusetts, but at this time was uh, a lawyer working largely for the Vigilance Committee. Um, he ran the fund for destitute slaves, and so he knew most of the people in Boston. Um, and he told, you know, that Henry Williams came and told um, John Andrew his story. And John Andrew said, well, I'll take the case. And they started fundraising. Um, and before he was done, Henry Williams had fundraised enough money to free his entire family, Mary, her little sister, Rebecca Adelaide, her brother, Oscar, her mother, Elizabeth, and Seth, you know, Henry's wife, um, her grandmother, Prudence, Prudence, her aunt, Evelina, her uncles, Jesse, Ludwell, and Albert. And I, I don't have time to tell you today about all that I've learned about each of those people, but they all have extraordinary stories of their own. In particular, Pruy, um, or Prudence, uh, Mary's grandmother, I would show you a slide here in 19th century fashion. I will just show you a picture from the book. Here we go. Um, Prudence Nelson Bell was enslaved by a woman named Constance Cornwell, who in her will, gave her and her increase forever to her illegitimate grandson, who was a black man. And so Prudence was owned by a black man for most of her enslavement, her 30-year enslavement. She had always been promised freedom by him, but never received it. And one of the things that was really interesting was because he did not actually want to take on the ownership of these people, uh, she went to go live with her mistress's executor of her will, who also happened to have been the father of all of Prudence's children. And so Prudence lived for 30 years in uh, an arrangement that we refer to as sexual enslavement, um, having lived with Captain Nelson until he died. When he died uh, without a will, which is crazy to me considering how many people and he owned and also how much property he owned, um, he... Uh, all of his, all of his um, people went to his wife's brother um, to adjudicate and to distribute. And unfortunately, Prudence was caught up in that. And um, I'm guessing, and this is something I can't quite tell, but it's quite clear that, you know, Eliza Nelson would not want to keep these people around. So there was a possibility that her family would be sold out from under her. And this catalyzed John Cornwell, um, her master, to start trying to figure out ways to get them out of Virginia, which is where the story picks up for Mary. She was born at about the same time as the case that would eventually free her reached the Virginia Supreme Court. Um, so I want to think for a second about the third part of the audience, right, the third part of Bar's formulation, which is the audience. Um, who were the audience for this photograph, and why is this photograph um, being produced for them? And I think that that's the thorniest and maybe the most relevant for us today. Um, Mary was photographed uh, in part because Charles Sumner, and he was not a particularly empathetic man, but he was politically extremely astute, and he knew that his entire constituency was white men at this time, and he felt that their desire to protect this child might in some way force them to think differently about slavery. Um, and we can spend a lot of time, I think, thinking about the intentionality of that and whether or not intentions are good enough in this case. Um, as a new audience for Mary's photograph, that's, 
that's us, our 2019 audience of Mary's photograph. I think this part of Barth's formula has a lot to tell us. We are an audience for this image, and I want to recall to us what, John, what uh, Frederick Douglass said at the beginning, that without criticism there is no progress. The photograph was made for one purpose, and my hope is that it will help us to get to another place um, through the criticism that it offers us. It gives us a space to speak about. So for the white progressives to consider, it's something to think about would be why are audiences like us receiving images that look like us, right? So why do you think that images made for us always look like us, right? So why is whiteness centered in the oppression of other people? And I think that poster child, the concept of poster child, is a really interesting place for us to start thinking about that. Um, for the black progressives and anti-racist activists in the audience, I want to consider how do you tell the truth to a room full of white people? And I think that that's something that is a question that needs to be answered as well. In this case, I think that we need to consider how Mary's photograph asks us to really reflect on the truth of what her story has to tell us about our actual history, and hopefully she can serve as a sort of patch on the tattered social programming that we've inherited from the 19th century. Abolitionists are imperfect heroes, um, and they brought with them a great deal of prejudice. Also, the 19th century was largely recorded by men for men of men talking to each other, and we have so little to go on in terms of real experience of the people, the lived experience of the people in the 19th century. And then also, there were so many taboos covering over Mary's story that it was nearly impossible for me to find out who she was from the jump. Right? And the reason for that is because we have so many taboos about sexual enslavement, about the sexual violence that took place in slavery, but then also what that means in terms of how we understand gender in the 19th century and how we understand what the world that we're currently living in. So um, I hope that I've been clear in that last part, but feel free to ask me more questions about it. As I'm working on this book and this tour around the book, um, I'm thinking a lot about how audiences are responding to her image. I see astonishment because we still have a kind of totalizing view of what slavery was and how Mary would have fit into it. It's like, oh, you know, she's not expected to be a slave because of who she looks like, right? And I think that that's a really important thing to put pressure on. Um, and also, just to use a dark room word, um, a room from the dark, you know, a word from the dark room is the word agitate. And um, when you agitate in the dark room, it, it means something slightly different. It just means to, you know, put something in a nice cool bath, 68 degrees, and shake it for 30 seconds. And I think that right now, that's how people are responding, and that's how Sumner responded to the question, how do we tell the truth to white people? Um, and I think that that's kind of just a little bit of an agitation. I would like maybe to think about how can we push that a little bit further, because as Frederick Douglass said, without criticism, there is no progress. So thank you very much, and I'm happy to take any questions about the book or anything having to do with it. Thank you. I will bring the microphone to you if you have questions. I had two questions. One was um, Sorry. Frederick Douglass didn't 
if you wanted to set something about transcribing, they weren't transcribed. Mm-hmm. Does that mean typed up? Yeah. Handwritten and they weren't typed up. Yeah. So Frederick Douglass's handwriting is difficult, but not too terrible to read. So it's not always a priority to transcribe what he has written. Um, obviously, you know, he was writing the speeches in 1861 prior to typewriters. And so it's all a handwritten. Um, and it, you know, I think transcription is something that is uh, a project of many archivists. And it's a pretty amazing part of the moment that we live in. Um, there's this technology called OCR, or optical character recognition, that it makes it possible to search by keyword text from the 19th century and earlier that have been transcribed. Um, or originally showed up in print, like newsprint. And so there is a group of activists and people out there who are doing the work of typing stuff. If you want to do that, you can go to the Anti-Slavery Project and just sign up. Like, here's a document, and you just type it up. And that then it can become a part of the research as people start to look for something. Um, and so a lot of the work of women and abolitionists people of color, narratives of all sorts were not put into print because they were not deemed to be worth doing so once that, you know, that just didn't happen. And so now we can go back and do that and make it a part of the research. Yeah. Um, My other question was you, I didn't quite catch the gist of um, your point. You mentioned something about abolitionists brought came to this with some bias or mm-hmm. I don't uh, could you explain the the bias or flesh it out for me I didn't quite sure yeah absolutely so um when I when I wrote this book one of the things that I wanted to do was to just present the facts as neutrally as possible um and not to make assertions about it but instead like I teach just to be like here's the thing make up your own mind because if you figure it out on your own it's probably going to stick right? Um, This is hard for professors to do. It's just, you know, we want to make assertions. Um, And peer review requires assertions. Um, So there's a lack of assertions in the book. And a lot of times I just give the material. I just give the abolitionists in their own words. What that does, though, is that it exposes for us some of the bias that they worked with. They were, um, they put their lives on the line and oftentimes their livelihood for anti-slavery. That is not a question. But they also occasionally used language that suggested, say, for example, they would use the phrase, the poor creatures, uh, to refer to the people that they were working with. Or um, that happens a lot when talking about Mary. Or they would um, sort of indulge some white saviorism as a concept, like that they were saving these people. Um, There's a lot of bias in the way that people are presented, quoted, consulted um, in terms of intelligences and philosophy. And I think, you know, I think that there's some analogs to that now um, in terms of in communities of activism, are we always being careful and clear as white allies about how we're centering whiteness or not, or whether or not we're exhibiting bias through the language that we use. Um, And certainly, like, in the 19th century, this was rife. There's no question about that, and I think it's important to read the book with some understanding of how race was considered to be a part of natural order of things for the people who were the white abolitionists working in the 1850s. That said, we still can hold them to a certain amount of account and reflect on how far we've come or not. Yeah, thank you. 
So you were talking about the intended audience. Yeah. Um, and that's uh, something I've actually thought about a lot in terms of whoever made the image or whatever mm -hmm. they've made has some intended uh, audience, whether it's like a family snapshot you know, right. or whatever. Yeah. But then that thing, once it's made, goes on to have audiences that were never intended possibly. Yeah. I mean, and certainly talking about this one and now, that's probably beyond imagination. So right. I, I was kind of a little confused actually when you talked about intended audience as if we were that intended audience when maybe not. I mean, no. probably not. So no. can you say more about how that sort of continues into the future and beyond the original intended Absolutely, audience? yeah. So it's a little theoretical, and I, I hear you there. I will say that when I say that the intended audience, there's the intended audience from the original photograph, but I also want to point out that we are an audience, right? Um, we count. So when Barr says that you can look at a photograph, you can also look at a photograph with intent now that may not have been imagined by the earlier folks. I think about, so when I, I first, first came across this argument, and then I went out to lunch at a place called Turkey and the Wolf, which is in uh, New Orleans, and it won, like, Best Sandwich Place or something, and it was very popular. And they have this wall of pictures of teenagers from the 80s with their mohawks and their crazy hair and their earrings and all the things. And it's clear that we are not the intended audience. And it is also clear that the Turkey and the Wolf folks are putting these pictures here as a joke, right? They're here to, they're here to make us laugh. And it's kind of, you know, I always, I, my first thought was like, what if somebody stumbles in here and finds their high school yearbook photograph under the glass at the counter at the Turkey and the Wolf as a mockery? Um, but it is the fact that audiences shift and change over time. And this moment, this opportunity, I think, uh, to look at this picture anew cannot be underestimated. The fact is, is that we could now look at this picture and say to ourselves, this is a beautiful child and that's it. But that's not exactly where we are in terms of the equality and the way that the gaze works today. Um, and so I think, you know, like Frederick Douglass says, we have to remove that contradiction between what this picture says and what it says, like what the meaning of it is, um, both for our audiences now and then. If that, does that make sense? A little bit. <laughs> I, I, have a, I have an addendum, if I could. There's a picture in here of Mary and Oscar that was intended for family use, and it's totally different. So I think that's also a part of it, is thinking through, like, if you've got a picture that is made for political purposes, it's going to look a certain way. We may not always be able to recognize what it is, but yes, there are pictures in here of Mary and her brother that were not intended for a wider audience. They're private photographs, and she looks completely different to me. So we'll flip through it and look at it after. Hi, thanks for coming. Hi, thanks. Uh, my name is Mohammed. Uh, I would like to ask, what is, what is your... Uh, you know, your primary motive for writing the book. What is your intention? What is the message to us? Okay. Um, I, uh, my primary intention in writing this book was to get the story out. I feel, deeply I feel deeply committed to my job as Mary's evangel. I've had a lot of feelings about it through the years, both as a, as a woman who was raised white, but also thinking about my relationship to Mary, of which there is none, and whether or not I have permission or, or whether or not I should be taking this story and writing it up as a book. In the end, the place that I landed was 
my motive is to make sure that this story is known. And so the book is largely extracts and as little of my opinion as possible. That doesn't mean that that's how I'm going to present it on the tour or when I'm talking to people about it. I'm going to say, hey, this is what I hope you'll get out of this book. Um, But my primary motive for the book was always to, once I decided to make it a book. So when I, it's had three iterations. The first was a, you know, an academic part of my dissertation and then a conference paper and a published piece. Um, And then I let it sit for several years and I thought that if I told enough people about Mary that somebody would pick it up and no no one did yet um, and I think at a certain point I guess it was a, it was about 2012 2011 when I felt like I'd been sitting on this story for some time and that that was just a further silencing of her and of her story and as more material came to me also if you publish something like this people come to you with all kinds of material And genealogists, um, uh, Solomon Northrup's granddaughters and great-granddaughters came to me trying to find out, like great-granddaughter, great-great-granddaughters, tried to find out if I had found any pictures or records of their time together on the stage um, because there are no photographs of Northrup that we know of. Um, Zoe Trod, who is um, responsible for helping us to prove that Frederick Douglass was the most photographed man in the 19th century, Um, she and I corresponded a great deal about some of these issues. Um, and so, you know, you kind of get to a place where you realize that if, if it's not you, then who's it going to be? And it, is it going to happen? Um, and I think that's where I landed. And it makes more sense to me to choose to do it in a way that is as neutral as possible while still remembering that as a white person, I will bring a certain perspective to it that I will never be able to, ex- you know, exist outside of. Um, so managing that as best that I could. Um, does that answer your question? Thank you. Thank you. Hey, two quick questions. One, I may have missed. What year was the photograph taken? And mm-hmm. then two, you said that Oscar died at 16. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you, was there any more knowledge of what happened to Mary throughout the rest of her life? Yeah, great questions. Um, I, uh, so the photograph was made in February of 1855. Um, by Julian Vanerson. If you're a photography nerd, then you know that daguerreotypey was on the wane at this time. So it was a, it was a deliberate choice to use a daguerreotypist to make this image um, that, dis- that would confer class status at the time. Um, and I know pretty much as much as can be known about Mary's life past this moment, and it takes place in the book in passage, a, a part called Private Passages, um, following her moment in the spotlight, um, Bleeding Kansas or Bloody Kansas started to emerge as the primary conversation around anti-slavery and popular sovereignty in, in Kansas generally, um, and John Brown starts to emerge on the scene, and the, the conversation begins to shift at that point. Um, Charles Sumner himself is caned. Um, so we start to see more violence in the, in the abolitionist rhetoric that Mary really doesn't have a lot of place in. Also, a number of people tried to adopt Mary away from her black family. Um, and at that point, I think also her family realized, let's, let's get out from under this. Um, so they moved to Lexington, um, Massachusetts, and over time uh, began to build some wealth. Um, and owned a house in Hyde Park where he lived with, um, where she lived with Elizabeth, 
uh, her mom and her sister Adelaide, Rebecca, as white women. Um, the other members of the family also had really interesting lives all over um, the Boston area. And Prudence, as well, um, was known to be an agent on the Underground Railroad from her spot in Weymouth. Um, so I think, you know, there's a lot there to talk about. But one thing that is important to keep in mind is that she was passing for most of the late part of the 20th century. And so even the families that would have wanted to adopt her and make her white at one time, she could no longer be in touch with because they would then expose her. She would lose her apartment. She would lose her job. Um, and so at a certain point when she's working as a clerk of court in Massachusetts um, and living on a, in a beautiful apartment on Chestnut Street in Beacon Hill uh, with another white woman, her name was Mary also, um, they, the there's not, you know, a lot of the abolitionists and so forth talk about meeting her, but also are like, we couldn't, we had to pretend like we didn't know who she was, right, because um, of the fact of, of passing and the fact that what she was doing was trying to run the gauntlet between white and black for the rest of her life. Um, and those rules were all set up, obviously, by white supremacy. So they were kind of, you know, I think sometimes people come to me with somewhat of a moral judgment around there. And it is true that there was a great deal of loss in their family because of the fact of passing. But I just, I'm always reminding folks that that was um, created by laws by white people. Yeah, so she, she kind of, you know, I think she had a pretty, I mean, decent life. I remember thinking there was this one moment where I discovered her death certificate and it was six weeks after I turned in the manuscript for the book, which is, of course, always the way. But her name was Mary Mil Mildred Williams or Mary M. Williams at the end of her life. And there are a lot of Mary Williamses. And I had sent off for so many death certificates. And this one finally arrived in the mail just that little bit too late. So my editor was able to just, you know, stop the whole machine and let me put in these last two chapters. She, um, you know... When I finally got to see her gravesite and to see how she ended the, you know, how she lived the last bit of her life was a truly uh, a wonderful moment for me, but also I think really closes out the story with a little bit of a last utterance, which is in the epilogue. Um, she had her, when she was 46 years old, her mother died, Elizabeth died, and she had Elizabeth moved um, from her original gravesite to a gravesite at an uh, integrated cemetery. Then she had Oscar, who had been dead over 30 years, also disinterred and moved to the same gravesite. And for me, that's a form of utterance, right? That's something I have on Mary. That's something I know about Mary, that she made that decision to do that at great expense. And then when she herself passed, she was living in New York City. She had herself um, transported to Boston to be buried with that family. So I think that tells us a little bit about who she was as a human. Yeah, thanks for the question. Are there any other questions? I just have a comment, and I want to thank you for this work um, from a photogenic perspective and also from a historical perspective, and particularly the part about passing, because so often there are so many women um, during the 19th century that passed, mm -hmm. but there's no story about them, or we don't know their stories, or the stories are yet to be uncovered. Right. So I think this is a great work um, to shed some light on what occurred during that particular time period. Thank you. Thank you, Vivian. Yeah. I mean, that there's no, I think there's no greater form of silencing than to force someone to live a false identity or an identity that is different from the one that is assumed to be true. And so 
you know, we think about it now with closeting folks, you know, it's a little bit more of a contemporary idea. But if you think about what that means for the archive and what that means for stories, it's very hard work. And Alison Hobbs, if you're interested in this, The Chosen Exile is an excellent place to go. Um, her book came out of a little while ago, so it's, it's around. But um, I, I think there's a lot of really great work being done about those families and about what the, it meant for those families to have to, to pass. Yeah. Well, thank you so thank much you, for being here, Jesse. Thank you and have a good night. This podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.